His day began uh, like any other day, hopeless. And it would end like any of the previous days of his 40-plus years of life, hopeless. He was born with the uh, inability to walk. Um, his legs were useless. He had never known what it was like to, to run and play with kids. As he grew older, he was no doubt mocked and, and scorned and ridiculed because of his malady. He, um, he lived with the constant realization that his life was uh, a miserable existence of uselessness. He must have been a, a shame to his family and his friends, um, a nuisance to society. Um, for over 40 years, he just lived in this dread of knowing that um, it was a daily existence that that was only prolonged because of the dutiful, um, the dutiful care of, of, of almsgiver as he would sit in front of the Jewish temple and cry out for mercy, mercy, have mercy on a, on a poor beggar. That was his existence for over 15,000 days, over 40 years of his life. And as he would gaze at people passing by, as they entered the temple, he would try to catch the eyes of, of, of that maybe one person that would not dart their eyes from him, but would look at him and maybe reach into their coin purse and, and drop some coins. Mercy, mercy, have mercy. And, and a few people would do that. And then one day, as he laid there in front of the the opening to the temple, two men approached him. He caught their eye briefly, but then, as would be his custom, he would be looking for the next person that would be coming by. But as these two men approached, um, well, his life would be changed forever. Because, you see, that's when it happened. Thank you for being here this morning at Fellowship Bible Church. And if you're watching online, glad you're doing that, and down in F3 as well. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to that wonderful story in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Or verse 1 through 10. It says in Acts 3, verse 1, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. It was the hour of prayer. They're going up to the temple. Why? Well, they're Jewish, they're Jewish men. And that's what Jewish men did. The ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it was to, the time to pray. And Peter and John are thoroughly steeped in Judaism. They don't see themselves as Christians. That, that wasn't a concept yet. They were followers of the risen Messiah, but they were Jews. And they were coming up to the temple, and they went there to pray like every other Jew would. And verse 2 says, And a man had, uh, who had been lame 
from his mother's womb, and we know from the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 22, it had been over 40 years. He was uh, being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began to ask to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. You, you can see this thing, I'm sure, laid, played out in, in your mind. Masses of people coming up, going through that gate. Um, his eyes are, again, darting to everybody, trying, trying to catch a look at somebody, catch their eye. Of course, people would, you know, immediately turn away, ignore him. He's, he's, uh, he's the beggar at the temple. He's been there for decades. It's the old beggar at the temple. But Peter and John stop, and as he saw them and probably looked at the next person behind them coming, Peter said, look at us. And verse 5 says, and he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And that's when Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And verse 7 says, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Luke, the doctor, writes that, so he's focusing on some of those things. His feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood up upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, realize this guy had been lame. He hadn't been able to walk at all, ever. He was born lame. His legs were useless limbs of nothingness. And Peter grabs him, and he lifts him up, and he raises him up. Walk! And this guy immediately, completely is restored. No, uh, no need for rehab, no need for uh, any of that stuff. I mean, he's leaping and he's shouting and he's jumping around and he is just ecstatic. His life has changed in that moment. And verse 9 says that all the people saw him walking and praising God and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg for alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Just like the chapter before in the day of Pentecost. With the sound of the mighty rushing wind and the fire and the, the people speaking in, in languages that they had never learned. And the crowd was filled with amazement back then. Well, here, maybe a few days later, they are again struck with the sense of wonder, amazement. Here's a guy that they passed by for decades Look at him, leaping and shouting and jumping, totally, completely healed. Well, that's one way to get, get an attention before a sermon, right? Um, and God certainly got their, the people's attention. And that's when Peter begins to speak his second sermon. Um, notice what Peter said, verse 11. And while the man was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, and they were again full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, 
Why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? I mean, that's really kind of an interesting question. Why are you amazed at that? Why wouldn't you be amazed at that? I mean, it's like, what, what, what do you mean? Why are you amazed at this? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Barabbas, remember the story? But you put to death the prince or the author of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we're witnesses. There's Peter, he's... And John, they're fulfilling what Jesus had called them to do. Go into the world and be my witnesses. I've been raised to newness of life, Jesus, and I go witness to that. And that's what Peter's doing. We're witnesses to this. And verse 16 says, And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. You know, one of the interesting things about this passage is, man, what a golden opportunity Peter and John could have taken at that point. I mean, there they are. The guy, it says in verse 11, is clinging to them. I mean, he's jumping. He's excited. He's, he's thanking them probably profusely. He's saying hallelujah, and he's clinging to them and, and all over them, and, and the people, the masses of people are gathering. So what in the world has happened here? What amazing opportunity Peter and John could have had. I mean, they, they could have seen their, their picture on the front page of the Jerusalem Times, right? They could, have, uh, they, they could have taken the show on the road. They could have filled every coliseum in Palestine. Masses of people, paying customers, in fact, could come. They could have bought themselves a 10-horse chariot with bodyguards. They could have got new clothes, you know, white patent leather sandals, slicked their hair back and called the crowds to come forward. Being a little facetious there, but that's what a modern Americans do. But what do they do? They put all the emphasis and the spotlight is all placed on Jesus. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. It's such a stark contrast, what God, how God views Jesus and how the people had viewed Jesus. Um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. God raised him, it says, from the dead, the fact to which we were witnesses. That's God's view. God has glorified Jesus. He raised him from the dead. And in between those concepts of what God has done is what the people have done. You delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You put to death the prince, the author of life. That's what you did. Who is he talking to? Verse 12, men of Israel. That's his audience, the Jews. God did this. He's glorified Jesus. He raised him from the dead. What did you do? You delivered him and disowned him and put him to death. The sinfulness of the people, that's what Peter and John are doing. Exposing the hearts of 
the Jewish people. One commentator has observed um, helpfully the, the idea of one's depth of sin that's shown in this passage. He said, sin perverts the human will. Pilate chose to release Jesus. The people chose not to release him. Crucify him, crucify him. Sin perverts human choice. Give us Barabbas. We choose the murderer to be released. Sin perverts human action. They put him to death. The prince, the author of life. What, a, what an amazing um, irony. You put to death the author of life. And what's the solution to this sin? Well, verse 16. On the basis of faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. It's faith that's made this possible. And it's at that point then that Peter calls the Jewish people to action or to account. Verse 17, it says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. If you think about it, all sin is rooted in ignorance. The Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 4, so I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. And that's the, he's saying that the unsaved world, the unbelieving world, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. All sin is rooted in ignorance. People are born spiritually ignorant. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4 says, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I know you acted in ignorance, Peter said. Spiritual darkness, spiritual foolishness, an inability to put the pieces together, to connect the dots. But, but then he says, as your rulers also did. Ignorance comes in all interesting shapes and sizes. I still maintain that the leaders of Israel knew exactly who they were putting to death. The Messiah. Jesus checked all the boxes of being the Messiah. So what were they ignorant of? That they could get away with it. Put him to death, and um, we've, we've, we've got control of the, this little kingdom, this little financial money-making thing. And um, that's exactly what the rulers and leaders of Israel. It was a high-stakes game of power, prestige, and wealth. And they wanted no Messiah to mess it up. But they were totally ignorant of the consequences. Brethren, I know you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah, his Christ, would suffer. He's fulfilled this. That the Messiah would suffer. Well, that's just taken right out of Isaiah 53. Um, and the, the four 
um, servant songs. Verse 19, therefore, repent and return. There's our word repent again, metanoia, the word that means to change your thinking. You are ignorant of these things. You've got to have a change of thinking and align it with what all the prophets had talked about, all through the mouth of all the prophets, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you, whom heaven, verse 21, must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. What is Peter suggesting here? What, what is he telling the Jewish people, the Jewish nation? That's his audience. This is not, you know, the first Baptist church down the street. This is not the, you know, the new Christian church over here. Men of Israel. And what is he telling them? They better change their thinking and return to their Jehovah covenantal God so that the times of refreshing can come. The period of restoration of all things. Now that's the same word that was used over in chapter 1 when the disciples, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, in verse 6, the disciples ask him, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? If you've been with us in our study of Acts, we saw in the early verses of Acts chapter 1 that after Jesus was raised from the dead, before he ascended that 40 days, he is speaking to the disciples and teaching them about the kingdom of God. Well, what's that mean? Well, that was the, the kingdom that had been prophesied and talked about by the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and um, Zechariah, the, the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one to earth to sit on the throne of his father David. That's what Gabriel had announced to Mary. His name is going to be called Jesus. He's going to forgive the people of their sins. He is the anointed one that will come and be the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophetic scriptures. Now Peter is saying to the Jewish people, his audience, you better get your thinking in line with the prophets. This Jesus whom you crucified, he is the Messiah. And you need to change your ways, have your sins forgiven so that everything that the prophets had taught about the refreshing times, the times of the restoration of all things, the coming of God's kingdom that's going to make everything right, who will reign with justice and righteousness on the throne of David in Jerusalem over all this earth, it'll come when your, line, when your mindset gets in line with the thinking of the prophets. You repent and return to him. And this Jesus, Peter says, is right now in heaven. He ascended up into heaven. And he's going to stay there, and notice what verse 21 says, whom heaven must receive until, there's a, there's a time indicator, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke, until the coming of Christ. Jesus is going to stay in heaven until that period of time comes about, and he'll return and then he quotes from Moses. You know, pull out the big guns with these Jews. Moses, the giver of the law. Moses said, verse 22, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 18, 
the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, said Moses, from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that everyone or every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Ominous warning. So Peter, again, goes back into the Old Testament, the book of Moses, the Torah, and Moses had said there is going to be coming a prophet like me who's going to come, and if you don't listen to him, watch out, judgment's going to fall. And so Peter, is, he's, he's pulling out the, all the stops here. The times of refreshing, the times of restoration, they're about to come. Jesus, the Messiah, he's in heaven, and he's going to stay there until... And so, folks, repent, get your thinking in line with the prophets. This is the Messiah. You crucified him. God raised him up. But you better return to him or there's going to be trouble. Verse 24, and likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these days. So Peter grounds his sermon again into the scriptures. And he's calling the Jewish people to align their thinking with what the Scripture says, or else judgment is going to fall. But if they do align their thinking with the Scriptures, and they accept Jesus as who he is, the Messiah, he'll return from heaven. And the times of refreshing and the restoration about which the prophets had told about, the coming kingdom on earth will take place. That's Peter's sermon. And he closes it with a little offer of hope verse 25 and it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers saying to Abraham and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways Peter said hey there's still time it's like the merciful God is going to give you a second chance you don't deserve it. You put him to death. You rejected him. You asked for a murderer to be released instead. That was just, you know, 40, 50 days prior. 50, 60 days before, two months before. All those people standing there remember that scene. Crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. You, Pilate was willing to let him go. You chose Barabbas. Now, I know he acted in ignorance. He didn't connect the dots, but Peter said, let me connect the dots for you. This is what the prophets have said. This is who Jesus is. We've witnessed his resurrection. He's up in heaven, and he's going to stay there until you guys repent and return to him, and then the times of refreshing are going to come. And why is that for you? Because the promises and the covenant were for you, Jewish people. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the Abrahamic covenant. God sent his son to you. He's your Messiah. For you first, verse 26, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Great sermon. Scripture, a call. What are the people going to do with it? Because if there is a national repentance, and if the people, the Jewish people and the leaders of Judaism would return, repent and return to God, align their thinking with what the prophets had said and accept Jesus as their Messiah, their sins would be wiped away and Jesus would return. 
And I think as Peter's preaching the sermon, that's exactly what he's hoping for. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Of course, the Sadducees were especially upset about that because that was a sect of Judaism that didn't even believe in the resurrection. Verse 3 says, And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. They just received all the praise of people and now they're being put in prison. Yet, verse 4, many of those who had heard of the message, they believed it. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The number of the men came to be about 5,000. There could have been over 10, 12,000 people that believed Peter's message. They're spending the night in jail. An ominous warning of how things are going to go. What is this second sermon of Peter's who was delivered to thousand years ago to a Jewish audience, what does it mean for us today? What are some things we can take away? Well, first of all, let's go back and let's not forget that the focal point of this whole chapter 3, the focal point of it all is Jesus. Jesus is the only thing, only one that mattered. The emphasis by Peter and John was simply this. It was Jesus who healed this man. And it's Jesus who can heal your spiritual heart too. That's the point. The, 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 the miracle healing at the beginning is simply a picture of what God is willing to do and can do to the nation of Israel who are like this lame man um, in a desperate spiritual situation. And just as Jesus did this to the lame man, Jesus can do this to you. He can heal you. God can heal Israel. And he's calling the Jewish people to accept that. Did you notice the, how Peter, all the things that Peter used to describe Jesus in this passage? Oh yeah, the Jews, they came to his own and those who were his own, they didn't receive him. They rejected it all. We know that. Did you see all the things though that Peter lays out as who Jesus is. It says there in verse 13 and 26, he calls Jesus the servant of God. Again, that's taken right out of Isaiah. There's four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And any educated Jew, anybody raised up in Judaism would understand that word servant would tie you back to Isaiah. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He's the holy and righteous one, verse 14. He's the prince, he's the author of life, verse 15. He's the Messiah, verse 18 and 20. He's the anointed one. He's the prophet like Moses that was predicted to be coming. He's the ultimate seed of Abraham. And Peter puts all that emphasis upon Jesus. He's telling the Jewish people Jesus was their only hope. You rejected him once, but don't do it a second time. Here's the offer again. Receive him. Trust Jesus. He's the only one that can heal Israel. And when you do, the times of restoration, the times of refreshing will come. 
But just as Jesus was the only hope for Israel, he's the only hope for mankind today. Nothing has changed. The audience may have changed. But the solution to spiritual hopelessness is still in one person, and it's Jesus. And why is he our only hope? Well, you have to go back to the story of the beggar again, the lame man, in the first part of chapter 3. You see, the lame man is a picture of everyone born into this world. Everyone born into this world is born spiritually disadvantaged. Each of us in our, in our pre-salvation, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this was true of all of us. We were born in sin, the Bible says. We were born in a hopeless situation. Just like the lame man was outside the temple, outside the presence of God. He was unclean. He could not enter the temple because of his lameness. So we are born outside the blessing of God. Everybody born in the world is born in sin, separated from God, hopelessly, spiritually lost. David, the psalmist, put it this way, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. As the lame man was, had been lamed since his mother's womb, so we are in our mother's womb, hopelessly sinful. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your transgressions, your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You know, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that a natural man, an unsafe person, um, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. He says he cannot understand them. Because they're spiritually appraised. It's foolishness to him. Paul tells us while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, that was our status. Everybody born in this world. We're going to have thousands of people come here in a couple weeks through Follow the Star. A lot of those people are going to know Jesus because church groups come and they put up, bring their buses. We've had, we have people from Pennsylvania and all over, all around. They'll drive maybe 100 plus miles, and they'll come to follow the star. But there's always going to be people there walking through and seeing the, the Christmas scenes and the, the nativities and the live nativity scenes. And that last stop is going to be that, that cross scene, and someone from our congregation is going to be sharing the good news of Jesus. And those people who don't know Jesus, they're going to be spiritually blind. They're not going to understand a word of it. Unless God, unless Jesus opens their heart to respond to it. And folks, that's what we ought to be praying for. That's why we do it. Follow the star. It's an opportunity to share with this community and many, many other people this wonderful hope of Christmas. 
But we've got to be praying that God is going to use that because that final scene is going to be crucial. People need Jesus. And it starts with understanding that they need him. You know, there was no problem with the lame man at the temple for 40 plus years. He knew he was lame. He knew he couldn't enter that temple. He knew he could only survive it. He cried out for mercy, mercy, someone help me. If you're here today and you may be very religious, I mean, obviously you are, you're here. But the question is, have you, have you put your trust in Christ? He's the only hope you have for eternal life. And it starts by understanding you can do nothing to solve the issue of your separation from God. That's a fact. We are born separated from God. We are there's an inability for us to move towards God. We're outside his presence, and there's nothing we can do to enter that presence of our own. We have to come to that point, and if we still think that you know, we can crawl our way to glory somehow, or we can take a few measly steps, we can somehow fix our situation, we're, we're losing it, because we can't. This lame man knew he was hopeless. It starts with understanding that we need a Savior. We need Jesus. We need his mercy and grace. And when we understand that need, that's when we, when we cry out, Mercy, Lord, I need mercy. I need your grace. Have you done that? Have you come to that point where you realize there's nothing you can do to merit a spot in heaven. There is life beyond the grave. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. But something else about this lame man that I think is instructive for us who have trusted Christ as our Savior don't you just love it? Of course, what, I mean, who wouldn't? Peter raises him up, and he's never known what it was like to walk, and all of a sudden, instantly, perfectly in good health, and he's leaping and jumping about, and he's, I'm sure, shouting hallelujahs. It says in verse 11, he clings to Peter and John. I mean, his life is totally transformed, and it's, it'll never be the same, because now he can walk. And folks, I think sometimes we as believers, and I've, I've, you know, I've been a Christian ever since I was knee-high to grasshopper. I trusted Jesus when I was five years old. Sixty-plus years. And sometimes that thought of, I'm saved. I've been healed. It, it, it could just become old hat, you know, old routine. You know, preach another sermon. Study the passage of Scripture. Guess what? I got another one coming up in seven days. Funny thing about Sundays, they come every seven days. And you're going to come back here probably and, and whatnot, and we do our devotionals or read our little daily breads and go through life and go to work and do, you know. You know, passage like this just reminds me, Mark, are you, are you thrilled about the fact that you were once lost and dead 
and ignorant in your sin and Jesus grabbed you and pulled you up and healed you? Does it excite us about, do we have the joy of our salvation? I think when we contemplate this Thanksgiving week and set aside a little bit of extra time to think about what we are thankful for. Folks, I hope that we gain a new appreciation and a renewed joy for the fact that once I was lost, but now I was found. Once I was blind, but now I see. And just like Charles Wesley, the, the Methodist hymn writer, who would be sadly turning over in his grave, but he saw what was going on in Methodism today. That's another story. How sad. But just as Charles Wesley said, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. I've got one, he said, but man, if I had a thousand of them, I'd be singing his praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Let me have a thousand tongues to sing. Because I was lame, I had no stock in the eternal state of glory, and, and Jesus came. The sixth verse, by the way, of, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, is, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold, your saviors come. You lame, leap for joy. I realize FBC is a bit of the frozen chosen here, but, you know, it is okay to say amen and hallelujah once in a while. Amen. We were on our way to hell, every one of you. And if you know Jesus, you are on your way to heaven. Amen. And it isn't because of us. It's all because of the servant of God, our Savior. May he be praised for his mercy to undeserving people like us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful gift that is pictured in the, the healing of this lame man. You gave him life. It's such a, such a glorious picture, Father, of our story, whether we dwell much on it or not. But before we came to faith, and you. We were that lame man outside that temple, totally unable to do anything to solve our spiritual lameness. Outside of your presence in the darkness of our sin, we could cry out, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. And Father, in your compassion and grace, that's exactly what you did. Oh, I would ask, Father, that we would leave here today and it would be only through the power of your Holy Spirit to stir within us a tongue of praise. And if we had a thousand of them, I pray, Father, we would still sing of your praise, of your glorious mercy and grace. Just renew Refresh us with that joy of knowing. May we, if we don't do it outwardly, then Father, inwardly, may we leap with joy for what you've done. 
In Jesus' name, amen.